Welcome to The Common Share, a podcast about cooperative businesses. I'm Tanner Bain with Cooperatives First, an organization that promotes cooperative business development in rural and Indigenous communities across Western Canada. Cooperatives First is located in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, on Treaty 6 territory and the traditional homeland of the Métis people. Thanks for joining me today. Before we begin, we want to give listeners a heads up that this episode deals with important but tough issues like opioid addiction and overdose deaths, in case this is a difficult topic for you. I'm excited to share with you today's conversation with Gordon Casey, founder of the Brave Technology Co-op. Brave is a Vancouver-based harm reduction organization that uses tech solutions to improve safety for people who use drugs. This unique and innovative cooperative has made a big impact since it was founded in 2017. More than 23,000 Canadians have died from a drug overdose since 2016, and the COVID-19 pandemic has made this crisis even worse. Between April 2020 and March 2021, the federal government reported 6,946 overdose-related deaths, an average of 17 per day. 90% of those deaths were in B.C., Alberta, and Ontario, mostly men aged 20 to 49. But people from across the country are working to make change. City officials in Toronto and Vancouver have petitioned the federal government to decriminalize personal drug possession, to lessen stigma around drug use, and to fund programs that help people who use drugs. In Calgary, organizations are converting a vacant office building into affordable housing for people experiencing homelessness, who are often at a greater risk of substance-related harm. Though not universally accessible, take-home naloxone programs reduce overdose mortality rates in their communities. These can be accessed through pharmacies or local health authorities, often free of charge. It's into this landscape that Brave creates its digital tools to help lower the number of drug-related deaths in Canada. Its tools detect when someone is having an overdose so they can get the help they need when they need it most. So the, the mission is to make it possible for anybody anywhere who is, is using drugs to, to be able to do so, knowing that if they overdose, somebody will come and reverse that overdose. So we, we say that we envision a world where every overdose is reversed. Um, we, we think that technology has a role to play in specifically reducing overdose numbers. We're not trying to solve addiction or prevent drug use. We're not trying to help people get into recovery. Those things can all happen as well. But our, our only focus really is just the overdose itself. And we all know, I think at, at this point, that the vast majority of people who die of overdose are using drugs alone when they die. And that the reason why they're, why they're dying is because nobody gets to them in time. And, and sometimes that's, that's minutes, but most of the time it's hours or days before people who who die of overdose are discovered. So, and that, like in this day and age, that seems so ridiculous, right? Um, so yeah, so the, the question that we, we came into this work with was like, what can technology do in that space? What, what will people accept? What are people willing to do with technology in order to keep themselves safe? And the answer we found over years, initially through sort of design jams and conversations like that, and then more recently through the actual technology being out in the world, is that people will do whatever it takes. And you give them tools and surprise, they, 
they use them to keep themselves safe and they, they tell their friends and their loved ones about them so that they will keep themselves safe. Brave currently has three tech products, the Brave button, the O-Detect washroom sensor, and their flagship tool, the Be Safe Brave app. More on them in a moment. Thanks to these tools, Brave Co-op recently reached a new milestone, 100 overdoses detected. But reaching this number took some trial and error. The initial idea for the app was, was um, I hope you'll forgive me for using this analogy, but it's, it's fun and it's, it's an indulgence too. But it was like Uber for naloxone was, was the idea. So you're, uh, everybody loves to say Uber for something. Um, but but the, the, the thought I had when I got here, which was something similar to what I was trying to do, had been trying to do in Curacao, was people are coming across somebody who they think might have overdosed and they don't have naloxone. So they could, they're calling 911, but actually there's somebody in the building right there who has naloxone who could come out and administer it. And then that would be you know, 10 times faster than the 10 minutes it's gonna take for the ambulance. And this, this is meaningful for this, this particular medical emergency. Uh, so I, I spoke to a bunch of people and, and like in the downtown east side and they said, yeah, it sounds like a great idea. And like, and a lot of people said, yeah, I had that idea too. And, and it would be great if somebody had actually built it. So we built it and like nobody used it. I couldn't figure out why for, for a little while. And then it, it, it occurred to us belatedly that the downtown core of Vancouver was probably the worst place in North America, at least, to launch a Narcan finder tool. Because at that moment in time, the, the BC CDC had sort of led the charge in the take-home naloxone program and just distributing massive amounts of naloxone across the province. Um, and and a, a ton of that was here, like right here in the downtown. And there were more people trained to in overdose response here than anywhere else as well. Um, so really I was trying to make an efficient process, like mildly more efficient. And what I should have done uh, if, I'd, if I'd known then what I know now, with a tool like that was go to remote locations, um, go to rural settings, go to indigenous environments where people are not being served by 911, nor are they getting, um, uh, what's the word? When you like swan, throw lots of stuff out there, they're not getting a lot of naloxone distributed mm-hmm. either. Um, and certainly not in those days where there would, would have been one core place where there was naloxone and maybe five or six people in a town who, who had access. Um, but the, the, the thing that it taught me in, in making that mistake was that the real problem, not just here, but everywhere, was people using that and, and people using behind closed doors and people overdosing on the other side of a wall to somebody who would have been very happy to to revive them if they knew that they'd overdosed. So that lack of knowledge was really the the key missing part and technology could still play a role there. So the the idea then that was born was uh, what does a digital supervised consumption site look like? And that was the the, the app, the first app, the Brave app. Um, After that, we, well, during, in the course of, of those conversations, I was asking people in housing if they thought that people would use this app in, inside the housing. And so we, we spoke to, to people in, in the housing and, and they said, yeah, it's like, it's a cool idea. Um, I'd, I'd use it like if I had a phone and I had data or I had access to the internet. 
and, but I don't always have those things. So I, I often have a phone, but it's not always the same one. I don't often have data um, and Wi-Fi. I usually have to go somewhere to get Wi-Fi. I don't have it in my building, which is frankly where I'm using most of the time. And we, I happen to be familiar with this, this, this button um, called, called Flick. Um, and I've been doing a prototype of something for, for one of the organizations down here for something else. And I said, um, I said, well, what if I put, gave you one of these um, and you could push it and somebody would know that you were using and they could come and check on you. And, and so it's just like the app, but it's, it's not connected to a phone. It's gonna be like stuck on your wall. So it's always gonna, you're always gonna know where to find it. And so on, they said, oh, that sounds great. Um, we should try that. And Van City gave us some money. They gave us $15,000 to do a pilot. And we went down to a building locally run by Rain City and installed it. And that was the building where within that first, first 11 days of installing it, there were three overdoses that happened with people using the button. And that was a massive surprise to everybody because most people in the building thought that they knew who was, who was using and when they were using and when they were at risk. And they also thought that most folks wouldn't really engage with a piece of technology like this because they wouldn't probably wouldn't trust us and really know what's going on. And we had done quite a bit of engagement with the tenants and with, and with the staff beforehand. But to see that level of engagement immediately was, was a, a pleasant surprise. With this new goal to detect overdoses happening behind closed doors, the Brave team wanted to build more effective tools, like their Be Safe app. Using the BeSafe app goes like this. You press a button on your phone or tablet and get connected with a Brave supporter by voice. Then you create a plan together about what to do if you overdose. You determine who will be contacted, like a friend or 911, how long the Brave supporter should wait before contacting them, and things like whether or not you want the police involved. The supporter stays on the line while you use... And if they think an overdose is taking place, they follow through with the plan. Any personal details like your name, location, and contacts information are hidden from the Brave supporter until they confirm an overdose. And none of this information is kept permanently. Brave's other two products are the Brave button and the Odetect washroom sensor. Intended for multi-unit supportive housing situations, the Brave button allows people to discreetly inform staff or security that they are using drugs and that they want someone to check in on them. The Odetect sensor is created for public consumption sites, like washrooms. The motion sensor will notify a designated responder of an overdose if it detects an occupant has stopped moving. Gordon says it's important that people start viewing public spaces like washrooms as safe consumption sites. If you want privacy in the world, there's, there's really only one place to go and it's a bathroom. And one of the reasons why people use washrooms to consume drugs is it, it's a place where you can take your time, which is an important factor in, in safety, when, especially if you're injecting. Um, it's a place where usually there's good lighting but people who, who are trying to prevent you from using your washroom will install blue lighting in the washroom in the hopes that you can't find a vein, but people still use those spaces. It just means now it's harder and it's gonna be messier and they're more likely to, to hurt themselves. And I, I, think, I think we all saw, well, all of us who are paying attention to this stuff during, during COVID, that access to public washrooms is, is this horrible reality 
for a horrible struggle for people who, who don't have a home or don't have access to the place where they sleep during the day. So it becomes this second home or second location or this place of safety outside in the world for, for a large population of people. And as I said, even for me, if I wanted to, to, to consume drugs right now, the only place I could do it would be in the, the bathroom of my co-working space or in a coffee shop. So it's everybody who's using these, these spaces and therefore everybody is at risk and therefore every business is at risk of, of having somebody going down in, the, in their washroom. And I think we've all seen those headlines. It's, it's usually a, wash, uh, a McDonald's or a Starbucks where somebody is, is found dead or somebody overdoses and unfortunately found in time. But it's in a, in a sense, it's only a question of time for anybody who has a publicly accessible washroom. And the answer is not <laughs> to shut off the washrooms to, to everybody so that people are forced to, to use in the streets. Each of Brave's tools was co-designed with people who use drugs. Gordon says the notion of co-design is also the reason Brave was set up as a multi-stakeholder co-op in the first place. It's always struck us that if you want to really serve anybody's needs, whatever, whatever whoever your stakeholders are, and whoever your, your customers or end users are, you really should be supporting them non-judgmentally and, and, and trying to meet their needs over and above everybody else's. And A, that's one of the reasons why we're a co-op is because they should keep us honest and they should have the tools to keep us honest, not just like a, a survey or something, but actually like democratic power. So, so yay for that. Um, but then, but then B, providing that non-judgmental support is almost by definition, like going to ensure that we end up building the best possible tools that we could build. So it's, it's self-serving, like in a, in a way, like obviously it's not like, selfish I'm not saying that but it's like it's, it's self-serving because like if we want to succeed at what we want to succeed at which is our mission then then this is the best way to do it i really wanted to give the the end users a stake and a say um so it was, it was fundamental to me that that they were were members um, initially um, but i had i've run my own businesses before and have never been happy with the shareholder structure and like Governance is hard and, and also just takes a long time. So you can have the best intentions with things like that in terms of profit sharing or giving shares out. And then you actually have to do the work and it's, it's there's lawyers fees and stuff. And, and one of the beauties of co-ops is that it just removes most of that, um, that you do the, you do the legwork at the beginning, of course, but, but then it's set up and it's practically automatic or automated. So, so from the worker side, I, I wanted them to have a stake as well and a say, and we just wanted to be open to, to take on investment. Um, and I don't think we'll, it's not like we'll ever really attract real venture capital in the, in the sense that we think of it in a Silicon Valley kind of way. But I wanted people to be able to, to support the work with just their finance. And for the, the end users, I, I don't know if or how long it will take for the, the consumer end user of technology products in the co-op world to sort of really grasp what it is that they have as, a, as co-op members. Um, but I know for a lot of the folks that are um, end user members or customer members for us, just the idea of what it is, is brain breaking for them and they, they love it. And so there's definitely an element of passion that they bring to engaging with the co-op as a result of the, the membership being offered to them. 
any any organization that is really claiming to be a community-based organization that espouses democratic ideals in in its organizational structure in one way or another really ought to be a cooperative. I would love to see the default question shift away from why would you be a co-op to like why why aren't you a co-op? Uh, especially for community-based folks, even to the extent that that nonprofits, I think a lot of nonprofits should really be be co-ops. Canada's overdose crisis isn't limited to major cities. It's affecting rural and indigenous communities as well. In fact, indigenous people are the hardest hit in this crisis. In BC, First Nations people are 5.3 times more likely to die from an overdose than non-indigenous people. And in Alberta, it's even higher at 7.3 times. Gordon spoke to the challenges of bringing harm reduction solutions to remote communities. We do some work in, in rural communities. We have, uh, there's a couple of groups we've been a part of in, in BC, in, the, in northern BC, and then in, um, in West Virginia, in the US. And in both of those, it's more like a community of practice conversations where, where we're presenting with other groups sort of on a regular basis about like what our tools are. So we've, what we've tried to do with um, all of our tools is ensure that they don't rely on sort of big, chunky state-led support systems for them to be functional at all. Um, so they do, as you know, re- rely on the internet. And um, so that's that's one, that's like our, honestly our biggest weakness in terms of needing to rely on one big piece of structure. And we would love to get off that. And we we have like, and have always been talking about ways in which we could move away from the internet and ship self-contained networks and things like that so that really remote communities would be able to just like manage their own thing um, and preferably not have to do too much management either. That it would ideally be plug and play. Um, so those are things that we sort of in our, in our dream box for further down the road. But in a very practical sense, the app, as an example, doesn't rely on 911 for it to work. So it's always been the case that you can rely on a community member, like a friend or family member, or a harm reduction organization that's local and nearby. I think it's hard for me even to imagine, but like I've had enough conversations now where I know, you know it takes 25 minutes at best in some of these locations to get a, an ambulance to respond. The cops might get there faster. And the cops probably don't have Narcan with them because they're behind on, on that sort of thing. So having this kind of system built in is imperative. And it's always been there from the start. And having that kind of flexibility where people can have one or the other and, bo- and or both sort of thing is, a, is really important. And that's only come about through trying hard to engage with, with rural communities. And how to do it better, though, I, I really don't know. It's been a struggle for us and um, because it's a struggle for them, right? So, and this is the part that's somewhat heartbreaking. We, we set up a, a way for the app to work where people could have private communities within the app. And there were over 50 groups that, that applied to have a private community set up for them. And we set it up for them. The vast majority of those were rural and none of them were able to activate those communities. So, so we set it up, we sent them the emails and the, the things and we, we had some correspondence. And the reason why they weren't able to activate them was just because of the resources that it would require for them to go out and get their own volunteers and to get people trained and so on. And that's been, been our, our challenge. There's 
at the moment only so much that we can do resource wise to sort of commit to it. And then there's, it's such a heavy lift for people on the other side to, to make the time to find the time when they are themselves heavily, heavily under-resourced mm-hmm. and, and, you know, putting out fires literally, obviously in some cases, but like just dealing with so many things. Unfortunately, many harm reduction groups across the country are under-resourced too, and BRAVE is no exception. Though it does what it can, it can only do so much. I asked Gordon what the rest of us can do to help fight Canada's opioid crisis. I think for a lot of folks working on on social impact, there is a concern that you might be claiming attribution of impact that unnecessarily or inappropriately. We are very aware of that at Brave. And part of this is a response to, you know, maybe the white savior kind of thing, right? Like the people in Canada trying to save Africa, for example. And, but it's also part of a, a, a response to the fact that we have people on our team who are reversing overdoses nearly daily out in the real world. And our technology is amazing and it's, it, it's what we're here to do. But the technology doesn't reverse an overdose. It's, it's humans who are reversing an overdose. It's people getting there in time, either giving breaths or administering naloxone. And that's a fundamental requirement for every overdose is for those people to get there in time. So we know that we're only a part of the solution. And so, so that's part of it. I think it's likely that the, the answer is sort of the work of a lifetime and the, the hard cultural work of stigma reduction, which needs practical tools. And there are, there are some, there's, a, there's a, a group in Alberta who have started a campaign called Each and Every, which is a, a way for businesses to signal that they are sort of pro-harm reduction and um, welcoming to to people who use drugs in, in general and wanting to serve them and not, not trying to kick them out of their neighborhood, for example. And so a way to say like, yes, I'm a business, so I'm, I'm making money and I employ people, but no, I don't want you to come in every morning and, and like cart off all the people who, who don't have a house to live in um, or to treat their belongings with, with this, with a, just to just destroy them, et cetera. So, so that's that's one kind of thing that, that people can do. The other stuff, I guess, getting practical is you know, find out about your local um, syringe exchange program or syringe services program. If there are ways to support, um, I guess, politicians or, or at, at every level who are supporting harm reduction things, then, then do that. And on an individual basis, the reality is like if you know 10 people and you probably do, then, then there's a really big chance that one of them is, is using heroin or fentanyl or something like that. And, and if you know like 20 or 30 people, there's a really big chance that one of your friends is, is an injection drug user. So, so honestly talking about these things and, and saying like, you know, you heard about us or you heard about this other thing or this thing that happened and, and how you think that sucks is a way to, de- that this is all destigmatizing things. Yeah, and if, you, if you, obviously if you know somebody who's who's using and, and you know that they are using, offering yourself up as a resource for a way for them to stay safe or, or letting them know that you've, you've been trained in, in overdose response and you've got a naloxone kit in your bag and if they ever need you to let you know and those would all be, those would all be amazing things. That's it for today's episode. 
I want to give a big thank you to Gordon for taking the time to speak with us and to the Brave team for their very important work. To learn more about Brave or their tools, you can find them at brave.coop or on Facebook or Twitter. For more information on Cooperatives First, head on over to cooperativesfirst.com. If you need resources for starting your own cooperative, check out coopcreator.com. It's a great resource site that has everything you need to get a co-op up and running. I'm Tanner Bain, and thank you for joining me today. Take care out there.